Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And I want to know, Greta Johnson, what are you wearing? Yo, this is a cape. This is new. <laughs> it is new. I just got it in the mail yesterday. I was inspired by our time hanging out with Kelly McEvers a couple of weeks ago. Oh, hang ago. on. Let me pick up that name you just dropped. <laughs> Kelly put it, is... Put it here. Hang on. I'm going to set it down. There's going to be uh, Foley artist pantomimes. For those of you That's who the name. don't know who Kelly is, she is the host of All Things Considered on NPR, and she has a podcast called Embedded. She is a wonderful human, and we got to spend some time with her a couple of weeks ago. And squad goals. Hashtag squad yes, goals. We love Kelly. Squad goals. She was wearing a cape that I kept accidentally calling a poncho. I did not make such a mistake because I want everything to be a cape always. She just kept like swooshing it over her shoulder in this really magical way. And I was like, I need to get me one of those. And now look at you. And it came in the mail yesterday and here we are. All right, down to business. Our guest this week is a bit of a superhero. I bet she has a cape or two in she her. She probably does. I could picture her with a costume cape. closet. Yes. Eve Ewing is one of my favorite people on the internet. She's at Eve Ewing on Twitter, but also AKA Wikipedia Brown, which is a very good name. She's an author and a poet and an intellectual. She works at the University of Chicago as a sociologist of education. She's fierce and funny, and Greta and I got to sit in an audience and watch her do something really remarkable here in Chicago a few months back. She was on the podcast Another Round, which we love, and was doing a live taping here in the city. They had her on as a guest and played a game that I think only Eve Ewing can win, (laughs) and she really does win. This game was called Six Degrees of Education Policy, and the idea was that you had six steps to get from a pop culture headline to education policy. And when they set up this premise, I was like, oh, no, this is not going to be fun or interesting at all, because I completely underestimated Eve Ewing and how smart and funny and good she is. That was your first mistake. (laughs) Beyonce gives birth to her Gemini twins. How is that related to education policy? Yes. Okay, so it's actually unconfirmed by Beyonce herself that she gave birth to the twins. This is true. I personally don't believe it until I see it on her Instagram. Yes, facts. Um, That is where all news comes from. uh, Yes, unconfirmed facts tell us that knowledge is socially constructed, Mm. and it's difficult to know what is true depending on the source. Okay. Uh, A case in which this is exemplified is in the production of textbooks in the United States. Textbooks. Textbooks be lying. Okay? Textbooks be lying. Textbooks be lying. Textbooks be lying. Uh, The largest, the state that is the largest purchaser of textbooks in the United States is Texas, the Lone Star State. All right, Texas. My people are really out here. Like, it's Texas. Yes. Texas. What? And as such, Texas and their social predilections has a disproportionate impact on the things that end up in textbooks. Which is an example of why we need locally controlled education in order to have the truths that reflect our own communities. Yes! Okay! 
bonus, bonus, Beyonce oh. is from Texas. Yeah. So good. That was Eve from Another Round. She obviously knows her stuff. She has a doctorate in education from Harvard, and now she's working at the University of Chicago studying social inequality, especially how it affects young people in public schools. She has a gorgeous new collection of poems out. It's called Electric Arches. There are poems in here about Prince, about Black Jesus, about aliens, about shea butter. We wanted to talk with her about her relationship with social media, which, like everybody's, is complicated, I think. And she will tell us why you should never, I'm looking at you, Greta, never, Greta, <laughs> Yes. never. Dude, this is not a problem for me. Do not knit a sweater for somebody. <laughs> Eve Ewing is going to tell you why. I think my relationship with sweaters is more complicated than my relationship with social media. So there, Trisha. We don't have time to unpack that now. Eve, welcome to Nerdette. Oh, thank you for having me. Would you be up for reading us a poem? Sure. I really like the Prince poem. Yeah, I, like that I, think that's, I would be happy to read that. Excellent. I wrote this poem before Prince died, uh, and then it has become increasingly important to me as I try to navigate a princeless world. It's called On Prince. In 1999, I would sit alone in the kitchen and eat jello, and I would speak along with you when you promised, don't worry, I won't hurt you. And my delirious synthesizer heart would go, in my rib cage until it was over, and I had to rewind fast or be alone again. I didn't know what a Corvette was, but I knew it was small and that it made you sad. And I wanted to have a trembling, breaking voice like that. And I wanted a motorcycle and something to be sad about. I wanted to play guitar with the rain falling all off my body and shake my shoulders when I walked. See, I loved you because I had never seen someone in a movie that looked like me before. Or at least how I thought I could look if I grew up to be beautiful. Our same skin, always shining, adorned with every kind of taffeta and smooth curls falling perfectly around my face like they were drawn there. That was my secret revolution. I would have fought Morris Day if you asked, hitting him with small fists and watching the gold in his jacket yield and bend until it went dull. It wasn't lost on me that they gave Joker your color when he stormed the place, signing his name to everything they had called art. He twirled a scepter, defaced what he could, and smashed the rest. They should have had you there or me, dancing amidst the plaster clouds and sullied canvas, and I knew then that 1999 would never come. And we would always be here among the organs. And there was never a music video for that song. But if there was, I wanted to be the one with a lion in my pocket. And it wouldn't be a tiny lion or a giant pocket, but just a special filthy cute magic that made the most fearsome things my friends and made my hands strong. Is that too long? You guys want me to read a shorter one? No, it's beautiful. Okay. I like okay. it a lot. Cool. You mentioned living now in a princeless world. Yeah. What does that mean to you? What is that like? Well, you know, of course we don't truly live in a princeless world because um, the spirit of prince is all around us, you know? And and I think that I've been thinking a lot about uh, what it means to leave a legacy as an artist and um, what it means to so indelibly, like, leave your mark 
on the world the way that he did, which is something that most of us can never realistically aspire to. Um, but one of the things that came out about Prince was that he had also been materially supporting all these people and causes behind the scenes. And so I think that's something else for us to consider that as an artist, it's not just about um, the work that you make and the imprint that that leaves, but also the way you live your life and the people that you try to uplift along the way. But yeah, it's a super bummer. I just never thought that I just thought Prince would live forever. I think you're right that it's in some ways maybe unattainable for us to want to be Prince. But I, <laughs> what do you mean? I think that there's something powerful about exactly what you just said of thinking that you should make your art with that much sort of gusto, and yeah. then also that you don't have to perform every part of your life. Like we think of him as such an open figure because of the way his art was, but he has that sort of. Uh, dichotomy of yeah he was very private yeah feeling like we kind of don't know anything about him but we also feel like through his music we know him very well yeah and now it feels like artists maybe are being pushed toward thinking that their whole life has to be on social media thinking that their whole life has to be public all the time do you find that in doing creative work that you feel like you're not sure what is supposed to be public and at what points oh i'm actually um quite private in a lot of ways which i think sounds i mean I was going to say similarly to Prince, but I can't. <laughs> like I Prince. Can't. Just start much, every answer. Much like, like Prince. Prince. Much like Prince. Uh, I too, no, um, I can't compare myself to Prince in anything except maybe height. But um, <laughs> that's some kind of purple in it. Yeah, too. I do. I have purple hair. My hair is purple, actually, in homage to Prince. Um, I had been wanting to dye my hair purple for a while and then. Uh, he passed away and I was like, now is the time because I'm rational. Um, <laughs> and I had bought this. Actually, the first hair dye that I bought was I bought it for like five dollars at some bodega in like Brooklyn. And I dyed my hair and it came out like totally jet black. Like it was oh. just utterly <laughs> wrong. And I was like, no, Prince, I've just I've disgraced your memory. Kiss. Um, the question about privacy. Yeah, I actually, uh, for someone who uses social media um, 35 hours a day, I try to establish some pretty specific boundaries around my personal life and my privacy, partially just for safety and like to avoid harassment. Um, I feel under no pressure to put my whole life out there. Actually, I frequently look forward to when I can, as I call it, go full Salinger and just like <laughs> I, I look forward to a future as like a grumpy recluse uh, slowly covering the outside of my house with like beads and sequins or something until and like having neighbors that protect me and like yell at reporters when they come into my <laughs> town looking for me. That's like my kind of my life dream. So what are some of the boundaries that you have established for social media? One thing is I try not to refer to like my family members uh, by name or post pictures of them on public things. I used to do that. And then when I started having more like strangers following me, I was like, skirt, I don't know you people. Um, and especially like children in my family. Um, it's hard because they're so cute, but I do kind they're of a so similar cute, thing. But yeah. um, I don't need these people in their business. That's yeah. not really fair to them. And when I started on Twitter, I was a middle school teacher. So I I don't ever curse on Twitter. Um, that's like a rule that I have. That's not really a, a privacy boundary, but it's just a thing. Yeah. And I, I have this rule where I, I never say anything on Twitter that I couldn't explain to my grandparents, an employer, or a student. It doesn't mean that they have to agree or that they have to like my explanation, but I have like an explanation behind everything that, that I say. I don't just 
shoot off at the mouth um, for the That's most part. That's so good. I teach people sometimes, like young journalists, I'm like, if you wouldn't say it to your boss or your mom... You probably shouldn't. Then don't yeah. say it. And to your point, that means you can say a lot of stuff because right. you should say stuff to your right, boss and your sure. mom. Right, sure. Right. You should tell your mom, hey, you know, I don't like banana pudding anymore. I've outgrown it. <laughs> of course, that would be a lie in my case because I love banana pudding. Um, yeah, I think that everybody has to have their rules that, that work for them. Super fair. Yeah. So when you think about being active and putting your thoughts online sort of on a daily basis when it comes to Twitter and other things – when do you know that an idea is the kernel of a poem and not just a tweet? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, poets have this phrase that we use a lot that just sounds kind of mystical and vague, which is like the poem wants to be blah, blah, blah. Like the poem wants to be in form or the poem wants to be short or the poem wants to be. And I, I think that um, there is something sort of intangible in the same way that like you can taste a soup that you're cooking and be like, this thing just needs more pepper, right? Or this needs some cumin or whatever. And it's kind of the accumulated experience of all the delicious soups you've ever had (laughs) and all the nasty soups you've ever had (laughs) and the things that you wish were different about those nasty soups. (laughs) It's like that. It's kind of like, you know, you just get a sense of um, this is a kind of writing that is going to resonate more with this kind of audience and it it wants to live in the world in this way. It wants to be an essay. It wants to be a book chapter. It wants to be a poem. Um, And I keep a, you know, I keep like a Word document on my phone or a Google Doc on my phone where I write down a lot of ideas. Um, The biggest lie that any writer ever told themselves is I will remember this later, right? (laughs) Essentially, I will remember this in the morning. Uh, So... Like last night I was taking a shower and I was like having all these ideas for something I need to be working on. And I had to just like get out of the shower and write it down really quick because I just am fearful that I'll lose it. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of an iterative process and just taking advantage of the time you have. I definitely write on the train. I definitely write all the time. I'm also always writing in my head uh, all the time. So does that mean... Like, technically, then you just never have time off, right? Because it's just always (laughs) happening in your brain? You know, I think uh, I had recently been describing being an academic is like you're always on vacation and you're never on vacation. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But uh, a friend, a colleague who is an economist, she actually, uh, I guess she's a friend. We're not really colleagues. She's my partner's colleague. Anyway, uh, a friend said she always describes it to people like owning a small business so it's not that which i think is more apt than my vacation metaphor um it's it's that you have a lot of self-managed time and you can choose when you want to like turn your brain off and take a little bit of a rest and stop working but you are the one who is ultimately accountable for the consequences of that choice right so like if you're a small business owner and you're like i'm gonna go home early today then like you might not make your sales for that day or whatever. And that's kind of what it's like being an academic. And I think uh, being a writer in general um, is that you just have to manage your time. I definitely give myself intentional like time off something that I I'm really like goofy. I sometimes put like watch TV, like in my calendar um, (laughs) or like knit, like in the calendar. And I just, I just put those things there. Like, uh, and it kind of allows me the protected time and forces me to, to chill, chill out a little bit. You knit. I do. I knit. I'm a knitter. That's awesome. What are you working I'm on? actually a pretty good knitter. Um, I'm better at knitting than I am at most things. <laughs> yeah. And the, the I'm a highly superstitious person, and so mm-hmm. I um, I'm definitely a believer in what knitters refer to as the sweater curse. Um, the strictest 
definition of the sweater curse is that if you make somebody a sweater, they will leave you. Like if you make Whoa. like wow, a husband or a boyfriend. Oh, yes. <gasps> oh, yes. Wow. And obviously it's like highly gendered and kind of sexist. So the presumption is like right. if you make a sweater for your boyfriend or your husband, they will they will leave you or to like ruin your relationship. And because I'm super superstitious, I believe in all the like different versions of the sweater curse, which is like if you make any loved one some large knit item and i think that like most like most superstitions i think it has some grounding in fact in the sense that like to me the fact is uh, specifically a sweater or any kind of like large knit item but if we're talking sweaters out here there is no amount of love or appreciation or gratitude <laughs> that somebody can realistically give you that is commensurate with the amount of work it took you to make the sweater. Yeah. Like it's actually yeah. in impossible. It's unattainable. Yeah. And so you're just setting up your relationship to be where you're like, look, I made this for you. And they're like, oh my God, no thanks. pressure. It's a sweater where one sleeve is like kind of shorter than the other one. And you're like, <laughs> manifestation of Deal. the economy of gratitude problem. It right? is. Yeah, it yeah, is. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I took a sociology class or two in hey. college. That's about as far as I can go, though. But no, it's, no, yeah, it's definitely you can't true. ever actually repay someone yeah. unless you also make them a sweater oh I would never make anyone a sweater yeah and no. I think I, in college I had this roommate who her mom was this incredible knitter and she made her this sweater vest that had all of this like it had like multiple different strands of it was just, it was really wow. amazing and she was so proud of the vest and I was like Never will anyone love anything appropriately in the like you're the one person in the history of time. Um, and having witnessed you, the one person in the history of time who's appropriately grateful for the sweater vest, it only further depletes my hope that, that you know, that's it. You saw it, that's it. That's I it. saw it. was Anne. Anne is grateful for her sweater vest, and the rest of everyone else is an ungrateful bum. That's and so, the canvas is just too large. Like, if you're a painter and you make me a painting, I can put it in my house even and I can look at it every day, mm, but right. I don't have to commit to wearing the painting for. Every day. Every, every day, and you can only people. wash the painting in cold water. Yeah, you have to and be you have really to, like, careful lay it out and like, be really careful with it. And you can't. make sure you don't have a cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a minute, we talk with Eve about Afrofuturism. I always give a really simple definition, um, which is it's the basic notion that Black people will continue to be alive and exist into the future. This is Nerdette. One thing I think is really interesting about Electric Arches is that it occupies a space in Afrofuturism. And I was wondering if you could explain what that is and what your relationship has been with Afrofuturism as you created this book and throughout your life, really. Yeah, so um, Afrofuturism is an idea that's been around for a while now, but um, for some reason now is gaining some like pop culture traction, which I think is exciting. Um, and it's a term that you can read lots of essays and books about what it means aesthetically and historically. I always give a really simple definition, um, which is it's the basic notion that black people will continue to be alive and exist into the future, which sounds uh, like really a simple premise until you think about how much sci-fi you have consumed in your life where there are just no black people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, where did everybody go? Right. Are we gone? Are we like in the salt mines under the like earth of the dystopian future? You know, Um, is everybody gone? And why is it that our society predicates a vision of utopian futures um, based on the presumption that like people of color will cease to be. Um, and so it's radical in the space of like uh, popular culture for that reason. 
And then it also obviously has a political salience in the sense that, like, America has been trying to uh, control, destroy, or kill black people um, since the birth of this nation. And so, um, and a lot of our cultural production is about our relationship to that fact of um, everything from, like, the blues to hip-hop um, to jazz music is kind of entangling ourselves in that in that relationship of uh, living in the only country you've ever known uh, that's also trying to murder you. So... Um, for me, Afrofuturism, um, is something that, uh, my mom is like a child of the seventies. So I grew up listening to George Clinton and the parliament funkadelic that she would play all the time. Um, and I'm also a big, like Janelle Monet fan, mm-hmm. uh, also a big Sun Ra fan who was based here in Chicago. Um, and so I think that like these examples in popular culture and especially in music have been on my mind for a long time. Like the first time I saw, Janelle Monet's image of herself as the arch android, right? I was just like, this speaks to me, right? Because I had, I was an English major in college and I, um, I always loved like science fiction, especially old science fiction. Like I love Jules Verne, you know, Mm -hmm. I love old stuff. Um, but seeing that kind of imagery meshed with like a black woman's face blew my mind. Um, so I've, became really intrigued with how Afrofuturism from a creative perspective becomes a way of imagining another future. And what that really means is having political encounters with the present and trying to, through imagination, think your way out of or imagine your way out of a a fairly brutal present. Um, And that's really fun. Like it's the the poems in the book that are about like time travel and magical things happening. Flying bicycles. Flying bicycles, like – it's been really fun to write those write those works. How much do you think the success of Afrofuturism now and how much you're relating to it has to do with the idea of like opening up the doors for more creators to exist in the space and then also just allowing for representation, right? Because, I mean, you're talking about how much you love stuff like The Twilight Zone or Jules Verne. Part of the problem with that stuff is that it was just all made by white people right. who were <laughs> right. failing to white envision men. a world right. without white, white men, you right. know? And so then all of a sudden, like, if you're allowing Janelle Monet to be an artist and own her space and make shit that you can look at and think, oh, and listen to and right. think, oh, this could be me too. I mean, it seems like that's a huge part of what is sparking this inspiration. Yeah, I think it's a number of things. I think it is. I definitely think the Internet has a lot to do with it. I think that like fan communities and Tumblr and DeviantArt and people can engage with fandom in a way that makes it what they want it to be, right? And so they can like recast a movie. Like what if everyone in this movie was Asian instead of white, right? In this movie that takes place in an Asian place, right? Like uh, (laughs) what if that happened, right? Um, And using fan art as a space to draw these kind of like race bending or cosplay as kind of race bending Uh, versions of things. I think that like internet communities have a lot to do with it. And I think also internet communities allow for circulation of information outside of like mainstream channels. So Sun Ra, you know, was working like half a century ago. Um, So this stuff has been out there for people to consume and and look at. um, But it's not something you're necessarily going to learn in school or see on TV. Right. And so um, but it's maybe something you can see on somebody's Instagram and like learn about that way. And I think that that's had a huge part of it. And I think also, you know, um, in the wake of like basically from 2012 to 2015 or 2016, I think all black artists have just been thinking about what is our relationship to representations of our own death 
in media, circulated all over the place, right? What does it mean to have to, you know, scroll down your Facebook timeline and see somebody shot and killed in the back over and over and over without your consent, right? And there's a presumption that that kind of imagery is going to, like, wake people up or change the world, to which I always say, like, Emmett Till's mother put him on the cover of Jet Magazine with that same hope, right? And people believe what they want to believe. And so I think that I think part of the engagement with Afrofuturism is an interest in exploring and trying out other modes of engagement um, with the present. And it doesn't mean that one of those things is right or wrong, but it just means it's like we're just trying something else. Mm -hmm. In the foreword to Electric Arches, you write that every story in it is absolutely true. Some of the stories are from the past and some are from the future. And we've been talking about that a little bit, this idea that you can sort of imagine and put into the world something that you wish to to be. But we're in this interesting moment around the word truth. Mm-hmm. And as an academic who I assume believes in fact. Yeah. And an artist who believes in <laughs> yeah, truth. Yeah, facts. Yeah. Yes. You are occupying both those worlds in yeah. a way that I think is interesting right now. Because truth for an artist and facts for an academic have are maybe totally a different, different thing. Wow. That's a great way of putting it that I'm definitely going to use in the future. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about that because I, when I do readings, I say things like all these things are true, right? And I say things that like, like this poem about LeBron James traveling back in time really happened. Um, and so I've wondered about how people receive that in the, in the light of this question over like a world in which people can present objectively like disprovable facts as though they are real. Um, but I think that the the distinction between fact and truth is an interesting one. I think when I talk about the book being true, it's kind of me playing with like, you know, I took one astrophysics class in college. And so I'm like, whoa, right. There's like all these different parallel universes and spaces in which things could occur. Um, and it's sort of meant as like a tongue in cheek thing uh, and in a provocation to invite us to think about like, what would it take for these things to, to happen? And maybe they did really happen s- somewhere and that place is not fully accessible to us, right? That again is my sort of superstitious mind thinking, you know, maybe we're able to conjure the world we want to see by writing about it. That being said, I it's interesting that in one sphere of my life, I'm pretty doggedly attached to like empirical accuracy. And in another space of my life, I'm not. But I think that the thing about truth, so I don't believe in objectivity as a scholar. Um, I believe that, uh, I believe that when people like scholars and journalists are asked to be objective, what they're actually being asked to do is conform to what is generally like a white cis hetero male middle class view of objectivity right and um and i believe that the things that are handed to us as though they are objective fact um are always translated through those cultural lenses and it's just that some people have the privilege of having those things viewed as neutral and other people um have those things constantly under question right and so like I don't know, like a woman journalist could write a story about tampons and it would be considered inappropriate to be like, well, here's my personal perspective of someone. Right. Um, But men basically have the privilege of seeing their own point of view as neutral and natural and normal, Mm -hmm. especially white men, particularly Mm -hmm. white men. And so 
given that, I guess I feel pretty free. I don't, so far, no one has come up to me and been like, I'm offended that you said this really happened. And like, you know, you didn't really travel through time. Um, but I don't know. That's when you should have one of those little like smoke things in your yeah, pocket. And be like, like <laughs> and then disappear. I mean, and generally, then forever they will be like, e-viewing really can Right. I really did time. Tra- travel through time. I mean, I think, let me say this. I am someone who really believes in play and like a strong sense of play and fun, right? And the book is supposed to be fun and playful and I want to play with our understanding of like how linear time works. And so, yeah, I feel good about that. As a side note, when I was a middle school teacher, I used to be a Chicago public school middle school teacher. And um, a lot of my students really did think that I had some sort of like sixth sense because I would just make educated guesses about who was talking or who was doing something when my back was turned. <laughs> and they'd be like, oh, you know. So I'm also I'm somebody who's very intrigued by like all the small magic around us. Yeah. Um, and that's also what the book is about is like real life, real life magic. Coming up, Eve gives us some Afrofuturist homework. You're listening to Nerdette. And now, homework. From the future. Ooh, I like that very much. You know, since we were talking about Sun Ra, who's a guy that I think is so interesting that a lot of people are not familiar with. So his name is like Sun, like the solar entity like the <laughs> celestial body that you may have you that you know and love um space ra like the egyptian god so s-u-n space r-a um i would invite people to just like google him and look at pictures of um what he wore and he also um gave this talk at berkeley uh that you can look up the the notes and read um and he made this film called space is the place you can watch some of it on youtube um, I just think he's a really interesting figure and I would encourage people to check him out. And the other person, um, cause I didn't mention her in our conversation about Afrofuturism, but Octavia Butler, the God, the goat, the queen, her fiction, uh, is really, she's probably the most influential Afrofuturist writer in most people's kind of canonical understanding. And, um, her novels are really good. Like, they're just really good as novels um, and really engaging. But they also invite us to engage with the present and engage with the future in a way that I think is really politically important and challenging. And in particular, I would give a shout out to Parable of the Sower, which is an excellent novel that also will freak you out with its ability to be resonant in the present moment, given that it was written uh, like 20 some odd years ago. So um, that's my homework, Sun Ra and Octavia Butler. That is excellent homework. Thanks. I think so. You won't regret it. Eve Ewing, thank you very much for coming on Nerdette. It was a joy. Thanks for having me. Excellent homework from Eve Ewing. Also, check out her book, Electric Arches. It's beautiful. And clearly, I think we should add to the official homework list, get a cape. Capes. Capes. Yeah, multiple capes. Don't stop at just one cape. A fashion cape? A morning cape? An <laughs> evening cape? A weekend cape? Mm-hmm. A pajama cape? A towel cape for when you get out of the bath. <laughs> Is that just a towel, though? I don't know. I mean, it's a towel with the hole in the middle, I think. All right. For your head. With some Velcro. With some Velcro. <laughs> this show like <laughs> is produced by us. 
Trisha Bobita, and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. I have enough capes for each of us. We could each wear one the of three my of capes. Us right here. Yeah, that's good. Well, and I got my own, so. But uh, our executive producer, Brendan Banaszek, and our intern, B. Aldrich, I don't have enough capes for them, but you do have two full-size banana costumes. That's true. Ooh, they would look good in the banana costumes, too. Please subscribe to us wherever you're listening. Apple Podcasts, maybe that's NPR One, or you can listen in the WBEZ app. Another thing that is super amazingly helpful is if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts, thanks to NPNNC and Cheryl for the review. I feel like Cheryl is exasperated with herself. I've I've really been looking forward to just saying Cheryl. It, there is something nice. Do you want to try it? Cheryl. <laughs> There's a lot of Y's. And yeah, I was going to say L's, but there there is an appropriate number of L's. No, there's an extra L. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Okay, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Get a cape. Do your homework, Cheryl. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.